1: Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. At Modern Day Debate, we host debates on science, politics, and religion. And so if you're a sick puppy like us, we encourage you to consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more debates to come. For example, this Friday we are very excited as Austin Witsit Gets It and Tom Jump will collide on none other than the shape of the earth whether or not we have a flat earth so that should be a lot of fun also want to let you know very excited that our guests i have linked both of our guests in the description so that way if you're listening and you're like hmm i like that i want to hear more you can hear more that's why those links are there for you also want to let you know a couple of housekeeping things up front modern day debate has invaded the podcast world. So we're excited. If you love podcasts, feel free to check out, as you'll see on the right banner, right side banner on your screen. Those are some of the podcast apps we are on. If we're not on your favorite podcast app, just let us know and we'll get on there. And want to let you know as well, housekeeping type stuff. I want to say thanks so much. For real. I'm almost like when I, after like the 10th email I opened today, I was like is this some sort of like prank I have just been overwhelmed with so much positivity and just I even this is Samuel I got your letter man I just want to say I am honestly overwhelmed by just people so positive and so despite being from all these different backgrounds everybody being united on this common goal that we have, whether it be, basically if we're Christian, atheist, Republican, Democrat, you name it, everybody says, hey, we want a fair platform, and hopefully it's a nonpartisan platform. So we only have debates here, that's it. So I don't have any sort of videos on like my personal views or anything like that. Totally cool if channels like to do that, don't get me wrong, but here we said, hey, we're just gonna have the debaters come and make their case, and then you, the audience, You can decide who you found most persuasive. So let's get right into it. We're excited. Want to let you know, it's going to be a fairly flexible format. It's going to be about five to 10 minutes from each side, starting with Erica. Then it'll be going into open discussion after those openings and then Q and A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free, fire it into the old live chat. If you tag me with at modern day debate, it makes it easier for me to get every question in that Q and A list. And super chats are an option, in which case you can not only ask a question, but make a comment toward one of the speakers and your question or comment will go to the top of the list for the Q&A. We are excited to get into this. So without any further ado, let me just first say thanks and greet Erica and Smokey. Thank you both for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, sir.
0: Absolutely. I'm always psyched to come on Modern Day Debate.
1: It's always a pleasure ever since, and it's on podcast because we, we went back in our podcast and we dug up Erica's first debate here, her debut against Kent Hovind. That is a popular, one of our most popular uh, downloaded podcasts I've seen. And so anyway, it's always a, a thrill to have you here and we're going to get rolling. So with that, Erica, thanks so much for being here. The floor is all yours.
0: Oh man, thanks, James. I, I, you know, I'm always, I'm always happy to hop on here. I'm uh, gonna throw some, some quick shame on the chat because you guys need to like this video for, for the algorithm. The algorithm is a glutton and requires likes in order to promote modern day debate. So go like the video, do, do your deal. And with that, I'm gonna share my screen. I think and, uh, and give my little, my little opening statement. Which, as I'm, I'm sure many of you uh, have seen my, the likes of me before around here on modern day today. Um, so my presentation will be a little a little similar but a little bit uh, unique I like to try to mix it up so that uh, it doesn't get boring for anybody out there because uh, you know we, we we cover similar topics and sometimes it's good to just have a refresher so I like to cover all my bases so I'm gonna hit my timer and go ahead and start. Okay so my name is Erica I go by Gutsick Gibbon on YouTube and today we're discussing human evolution which is a topic that I, I very much enjoy uh, talking about. So obviously I'm here for the affirmative um, and I want to go ahead and clarify what human evolution is very briefly. So human evolution typically concerns the study of the lineage of organisms that spans the geologic period between the common ancestor of extant humans, that is to say us, and chimpanzees, our closest living relatives, um, to the present. So the common ancestor between us and chimps to now, um, all of those species, that's what human evolution kind of concerns itself with. Now, generally speaking, this involves the fields of anthropology, biology, genetics, geology, and physics, but there are a couple more in there. These five fields typically corroborate one another and support the conclusion that to the best of our current knowledge, modern humans evolved from an ape-like ancestor in the East African Rift Valley some seven million years ago when our lineage split from that of the modern genus Pan, so chimps and bonobos. So what testable predictions can we use to support or deny this idea? Well, if human evolution is true, we should be able to show via physics and geology that the earth is very old, seven million years at the very least, um, but more like 4.8 billion. And we should be able to show that we are currently primates, haplorines, catarines, hominoids, et cetera, via genetics, demonstrating the nested hierarchical pattern present in all lineages. So we should be able to show basically that for all the means that we decide that a rhesus macaque or a baboon is like a a haplorine or a catarine, humans would meet those same criteria. We should also... Be able to demonstrate via genetics when comparing humans to the rest of the extant animals that our closest living relative is the chimpanzee. Uh, this should hold whether we're comparing ERVs, microRNAs, pseudogenes, or whole genome. And we should be able to show via paleontology that from our last common ancestor to chimpanzees, which would be around, say, Halanthagrestidensis, like um, there exists a slow transition of the suite of characteristics that makes us different, extended through geologic time. So, is the earth old? That's the first question we have to ask. Um, that you guys have seen this slide before but radiometric dating is indeed solid as a rock. It's based on a firm law in physics known as the radioactive decay law. It essentially just measures how parent nuclei decay into alpha particles and daughter nuclei. We measure those ratios to, to dictate how old something is. And to our knowledge decay rates don't change in meaningful ways over time uh, in, in nature on our planet. Um, And this is something that even creationists will admit to the rate group has been discontinued since 2005 there they were heralded by like answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research, and they were like yeah we, we can't figure this out there's gotta be an exotic solution or miracles or something along those lines in the future. And on top of that, there's a $257 billion industry uh, that depends on this annually, that depends on radiometric dating working. Uh, the oil industry, the the natural gas industry, the coal industry, all of those depend on using the methods of radiometric dating to find these, these caches of, of uh, fossil fuels. So are we primates? So I very much like this picture. This is uh, uh, Jennifer Garner and... Um, and a bonobo. Both of them are holding on their child on their hip. I just think that that's very telling. It's, I find that, that this comparison very beautiful. Um, but genetics dictates relatedness. So by full genome comparison, which is just a souped up method of the paternity test, we can we can see that we share 96 to 99% of our genome with chimpanzees, depending on whether we're looking at coding or non-coding. This number accounts for the size and unsequenced regions of both of those genomes. We also know that chimps and bonobos are more closely related to humans than they are to gorillas or orangutans. Now, those who deny human evolution are all too happy to accept paternity tests and genetics linking the likes of lions and tigers or crocodiles and alligators, but they will arbitrarily draw the line between humans and genus pen because they don't want to be considered apes. The point here is not, I want to be very clear on this, it's not that humans and chimps are the same. It's not even that they're like, you know, mostly the same, even, even though they are. The point is, is that genetics determines how closely related organisms are within and between species. We can't draw a line like anywhere in genetics currently. Um, So my question would be to Smokey, like where where would he draw the line and and why does he draw it there? Uh, That's that's a line you guys have probably heard from me before. but so what do I mean by this? Like what, what what's the point here? Well, Smokey and his brother might be completely different. He may live as a hermit in the woods, hunting his food with a bow and arrow and never shaving or showering. He can barely remember how to speak English or my brother might be that way. Um, but you might live in a high rise, like in a city. And have a sweet job and get takeout every night and have excellent hygiene and be fluent in four languages. Your behavior, appearance, and even your cognitive ability are very different, but that's still your closest living relative on the planet. This, this is a very crude analogy to, to humans and chimps because genetics dictates relatedness. That's the point. So morphology bolsters genetics, so I I very much like all these pictures, we have streptorines versus haplorines, an orangutan mimicking some local fishermen and fooling around with a spear, Uh, a baby gorilla reacting in the same way as a baby human when touched with a cold stethoscope, the white sclera of a chimpanzee, which creationists often complain that uh, (laughs) replications of the hominids have white sclera, well that's because many apes have white sclera as well, Uh, a gorilla's hand with vitiligo, and the Y-shaped molar pattern that we share with all the other hominids. But what do the fossils say? Because that's what I like to talk about fossils, and um, uh, primate, <laughs> primates in general, but but for the sake of human evolution fossils. So can we show morphologic change over geologic time in the suite of differing characteristics between humans and, say, Heliothropus genensis? Say, Holotropus being this, this very chimp-like, uh, probably mostly knuckle-walker, habitual knuckle-walker um, primate? And the answer is yes, resoundingly yes. So I I love this picture. I showed in everyone and every debate that I'm in because I find it to be so poignant. You can't draw a line here. I don't know any, I've never met a person in a debate who's drawn a line for me here and told me which are apes and which are humans, which is what creationists try to do and and indeed must do um, if they want to invalidate human evolution. So we're going to go through some of the fossils Sahelanthropus chidensis, Ardipithecus cadaba, Ardipithecus ramidus, and aurorantuganensis. They're all very chimp-like um, in most of their features, except for one, which is that their pelvis is starting to look like a human's. It's very bowl-like. These guys probably spent quite a bit of time on their two feet, much more so than uh, chips or bonobos today. They had a more inline big toe and they had a brain case that was pretty much just a chimp's. but their teeth were already starting to look very human-like. They had very small canines, all of them did and the head of their femurs was starting to, to, to crook so that it could hold the weight of the body over over the feet. Then we have our, our Australopithecines, um, anamensis, afarensis, and africanus, all very mosaic, and you'll you'll see what I mean on the next slide. But we've got Lucy there in the middle. We have multiple specimens of each of these guys. I want to be very clear. Um, most of the hominids that that I try to represent and talk about, we have multiple specimens of. So, and we can indeed tell pathology by looking at bones. So it's not like an, an organism with like dwarfism or something like that. But yes, so these guys are very mosaic from their palates to their feet, which with a very inline big toe to their brain case, which is larger than chimps, but still much smaller than a humans, a bowl shaped pelvis and knees that look like they could have come right off a human cadaver. These guys are indeed very mosaic. But we also have other mosaics we've got australopithecus sediba and homo habilis which creationists have have occasionally resorted to calling artificial species or like as if they're a mix of of ape bones and human bones uh which is very hard for me to buy considering the pictures of, of the fossil finds are like in two separate clumps representing two separate individuals um and and the author of the paper who initially said that they were maybe a mixture of two species uh one of the authors has since recanted Um, But these guys are indeed very mosaic as well. Small brain cases, but still much larger than chimpanzees. Uh, The rest of their postcrania, that is the the skeleton below the skull, is starting to look incredibly human-like. These guys were almost certainly obligate bipeds. Um, And then we've got Erectus, Heidelbergensis, Neanderthalensis, and Floresiensis, which almost everybody from creationists to uh, those who are more into conventional scientists uh, accept are are human because for conventional reasons, they're in the genus Homo and for uh, creationists because uh, they look very human. But here's the point. You can't tell what's human and what's ape. Creationists cannot tell. That is precisely the point. This is a diagram here of multiple different creationists trying to draw the line. And as you can see, none of them can agree, which is of course the, the, the point of the matter. It's very difficult to tell. Anthropologists can't even tell based off of what, like which general we should put them in. Sometimes we argue about it. At least we admit that we argue. Uh, It's mosaics all the way down. We don't look at the hominids in the fossil record and place them in a neat line of direct ancestry. It's bushy and overlapping. What we directly observe is this. The suite of traits that separate humans from Sehalanthropus chidensis can be seen changing gradually through geologic time from basal to derived. We measure the ratios of these traits in all the hominids and see a trend towards humanness. This is the foundation of biological anthropology. So the do's and don'ts, like all these hominids, you should not put them in a March of Progress style line. And what you should do is put them in overlapping nice graphs. So here's my conclusion. Numerous fields support humans as having evolved from an ape-like ancestor some 7 million years ago, and our current status as hominoids. To discredit this, numerous concepts in science must be overturned systematically. Radiometric dating must be shown to be non-constant. A means to separate humans from the other apes must be determined, and it must be standardized to the rest of life. That's a very key part of that. Um, An alternate explanation must be given to invalidate the morphologic change through geologic time patterns seen in the hominid fossil record that can be applied to the whole of paleontology. Uh, and that's my presentation.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much. We'll switch it into the main screen mode and we'll kick it over to Smokey. Thanks as well, Smokey, for being here. Excited to have you. And beautiful. The
2: floor is all yours. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you, James. And thank you, Erica, for taking the time to show up and do this debate tonight. Of course, I'm kind of the pinch hitter <laughs> coming in off the benches to, sure. to fill in the debate and make this uh, thing kind of happen. So this is not kind of my typical area of expertise or study. So um, I've kind of just uh, I've done a bit of research, really looked into it uh, kind of to refresh myself today. Um, because, of course, you know, I like to look at these perspectives and ideas and belief systems from a little bit more of a personal perspective as well. Because I know all the things that we believe is based upon kind of a belief network, a structure that's in our mind, our psyche, something that we refer to to judge our reality, you know, reject certain things and accept certain things that fit in nicely. Um, What I've kind of seen as I've dissected a lot of the information and arguments from both sides of the camps, refreshing myself most recently, is I'm starting to notice a couple themes in the evolutionary camp. And it seems, and and I think it did come out a little bit in Erica's presentation, that it seems that the preponderance of evidence that is being relied upon is all predominantly morphological, as in these things look the same as these other things, or these things have similarities to these other things. Now, you can draw an inductive argument, or even an abductive argument, I suppose, uh, to draw to the conclusion that this is a product of naturalism. But in order to do so, you're essentially presupposing naturalism. The mechanism of which you're presupposing for naturalism to explain heredity of these different species leading down to each other morphologically carries with it the insertion that is, it is all naturalistically uh, motivated. Now, th- I have several issues with this type of perspective that don't seem to function in a logical framework for how the theory is supposed to operate supposedly the evolutionary theory or particularly human evolution which is the idea that this information seemingly increases now if the driving force of evolution is indeed mutation and unless uh, and Erica can maybe provide an example to the otherwise i believe mutation is either the elimination or the neutral amount of information um, in the code. So we never see an addition of information or an attribution of, of additional traits. We tend to see really the opposite. And this also flows in line with the second law of thermodynamics. You know, our universe we know is a universe of atrophy, everything is wearing down. And this includes information and information transcription. So as time goes by and the information in our DNA and our cells is transcribed and rewritten time after time time again, it can have errors. Now we of course have error, you know, uh, error-correcting software built into us to deal with a lot of these negative mutations, but some of them might get through and they might become permanent mutations. And generally, most of these mutations are fatal or detrimental to the organism rather than beneficial or even allowing it to survive at all. So I need probably some type of um, reconciliation of how one can claim that, you um, the increase of information could possibly be provided um, through mutations. Uh, that's something that I have a hard time really reconciling and dealing with in my mind. Um, as for you know actual pressures, again, another one of these mechanisms claimed to be for evolution is external natural pressures. But yet I don't seem to see a lot of information being provided on anyone having any clue what the possible... Uh, environmental pressures could have been to push apes into intelligent upright walking humans you know why did it push some of us in that direction and not push the rest of the chimpanzee population or the other great apes into a similar direction why why were we so fortunate these are the types of things that for a tested supposedly concrete theory I would expect it to be able to propose answers with these types of predictions and I don't really see that happening it kind of seems to be the type of ideology where it almost is looking constantly looking for its own biased confirmation and ignoring everything that doesn't quite fit or what they can't explain and then they fill that gap with well we don't know we don't know yet but naturalistically someday we'll figure it out and i don't think that's particularly good science and i don't think it's really good logic or philosophy. So, so, you know, if, if we're, and, and I will just bring one last little example. Um, the Galapagos finches, which have been considered, you know, a really prime candidate for the understanding of evolution, now since they've been studied with a little bit more uh, information of their genomes, their actual genomes are being studied now, we notice that there's a specific gene in them that we also as humans have that governs uh, the shape of our skull structure. And that is what gave um, the finches their different beaks. So it's not. Not actually, as we find out, they came from an ancestral finch that had the collective genome information for all these finches. So it's not actually a product of evolution or an increase of information or even really a change of information. It's just a product of selective breeding, basically like natural pressure turning um, a wolf into a great dame you know that's kind of essentially what we're seeing and and of course we know that adaptability from our world view is actually programmed into all of the species so that we actually have a chance for survival in a dynamic changing environment without adaptability being programmed into us we'd have no chance of survival and with that i suppose i can yield
1: thank you very much we will kick it into open discussion floor is all yours
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm down to talk about whatever I, I have a sure. couple of questions um, for you. Cause I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure where you're coming from. Like if you're a young earth creationist or standard.
2: Creationist. I'm not young. I, well, let, let's put it this way. I'm neither young nor old. I, I okay. kind of just don't need to take a position. W- w- I okay. will say this. I, I do lean towards um, acceptable scientific arguments for either, you know, cause there's some, honestly, there's some on either side of the fence I've heard that are pretty compelling. So, you know, but, but I, I'm going to look at it more through the lens of if I think on a collective sense that cosmology, geology and biology all tend to point to older type of earth or older type of environment, I'm not necessarily just going to throw it out to satiate my bias.
0: Sure, sure. So, so I want to touch on something first. So first, the advent of new information. So I find that defining information, information can be kind of a tough term to nail down. Like, I feel like a lot of times when, when at least I I can only speak for myself, but when I'm having conversations with others, uh, creationists and, you know, non-creationists alike, I think that sometimes we end up talking past each other because we're not, we're not
2: really not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Yeah, because we're not really talking about the same thing. So for me, I I, I heard you speaking about um, how mutations tend to be neutral or deleterious. So there can be beneficial mutations, but whether or not this is a key thing that that at least I personally see gotten wrong a lot um, Mm -hmm. from creationists, but what is fit what makes an organism more fit and what makes a mutation beneficial is almost entirely um, determined by the environment right um, a great example would be looking at bacteria that are antibiotic resistance or antibiotic resistant my mistake so if you take an antibiotic resistant bacteria and regular bacteria of the same species and put them in an environment where the antibiotic is present well the antibiotic bacteria is going to Vastly outperform the, the regular bacteria because it's in an environment that it has essentially adapted and mutated to survive. But if you take both of them and put them in an environment with no antibiotics, the antibiotic bacteria or antibiotic-resistant bacteria will actually be outcompeted by the original bacteria. So the environment kind of dictates whether or not a mutation is truly beneficial. Um, so when we say like, can new information? First of all, that that's kind of my spiel on. What is a beneficial mutation? Um, and then, very quickly, on can information be added? I give this example a lot because it, it dictates, I, it really helped it explain to me what it means when we say information is added in conventional evolutionary biology. So, if you have a sentence, the cat, right, the letters are the codons or are the nucleic um, uh, nucleobases or whatever. The cat portrays a set amount of, of information. It conjures up an image of a cat in your head and you're like, okay, that's cool. That's like a, It's a sentence, but it's a very short sentence. So if you had a duplication event, so you had the cat cat, and then you had a frameshift mutation. So now you have the cat sat. Well, that already is quite a bit more information than the original sentence. If you have another duplication event and you have the cat sat sat, and then an additional frameshift and you have the cat sat sad, and then you have like a, a, um, a relocation, so you end up with the sad cat sat. That's infinitely more information, I'm being hyperbolic, but it's infinitely more information than just the cat. So duplication well, is been tinkered with, add new information from a conventional perspective.
2: Okay, I, I, I kind of get the analogy you're drawing to that, but, but here's my issue with it, is that none of those extra additions into that sentence mean anything unless the language exists to interpret what those additions mean. So, so for instance, uh, you can say, I'm adding these, these letters, I'm adding this extra info into it, basically. But if the language isn't prepared to do anything with that, if it doesn't know what to do with those symbols, with that those additions, then it, it's basically going to be incoherent. The language has to know what to do with that information so that if you are adding information, it's sensible. Now, change your example a little bit. Let's say it wasn't SAD, it was SAV, you know, and, and it's S-A-V, and that's not even a word. You know, right. that's just that's just basically random jumbled nonsense. So you could yes. put that in there as, as a mutation. That's not going to work. That's going degrade. But Yeah, and, you, I, and
0: I totally agree with you right. because in that so, case, it would be selected again right and that organism right. wouldn't be able to do that job so most mutations right. are neutral some do bad things and then under the right conditions some do good things
2: but the only so- way yeah my point was but the only way, and i hope this was carrying through the only way it could do something good is if that addition of those symbols those extra symbols is information that the language can already interpret so it's not like it's not like it's really being added it's all already there it's inside the language otherwise the otherwise it would be incoherent. To what to be done with that thing. You see what I mean? We're looking
0: at like the alphabet, right?
2: Right. Right. Thank you. Yes, there we go. Thank you. Well well, I mean, more, more, not really even really the alphabet, even deeper than that. The language behind the alphabet. Because the alphabet is just the letters, you know, that make up the language, you know. So I mean, we're really talking about the actual expression, the actual value. Of of the data, the value of the letters.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. And uh, John Maddox and I discussed that very lightly over when I talked with him over on Standing for Truth's channel. And and I found that very compelling because that's not a uh, compelling in the sense that I just didn't know very much about the topic. No, yeah, I,
2: was, I understand.
0: Ah, that's that's interesting. I've, I've never looked into it. Well, it's and, and
2: just so you understand from our perspective, or at least my perspective, I shouldn't say our because I I do not see a lot of things eye to eye with my young Earth brothers and sisters, but they still so love. Right. Me. Smell, yeah, sure, sure. No, I you get know. you. Uh, uh, so you know, just so you kind of understand how I'm looking at it from from my view, like in the terms of like, um, say say you have a whole I don't know, and I'm just gonna try and make it real simple. It's messy, but just bear with me. You gotta you got a protein chain. And this protein chain is mixed up with basically a bunch of different symbols. There's some sort of mechanism. There's a language that knows what all those symbols are, what each one of those things are, and what they can and can't do, and where they need to go. Now, the symbols just being there is fine. That's just jumbled noise. That doesn't mean anything until there's a language to tell all those symbols what they actually mean and what they should be sorted to. And I guess from our worldview, from our perspective, we're always trying to reconcile that with the evolutionists. Where does not where does the data come from? Not where does the info come from? Where does the language that interprets it come
0: from? Yeah, the the laws that govern it. I'm with you. And and that's what I'm saying. Like, when I talked to John, I was like, I've never really looked into that before. So, and granted, I, I haven't I haven't had a ton of time lately, but I did. <laughs> no, briefly.
2: I know you got engaged and stuff. Yeah. Congratulations. I know planning a wedding is yeah. insane. So, you know, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, things, things have been complicated, but I did have some time to look very briefly into it. And I, I have some papers that I've I really only read the abstract and conclusion right now. Right. That's all I had time to read, gotcha. but I, I want to read the rest of them. And well, and a we
2: don't have to spend a whole bunch of time drilling. in Yeah,
0: sure, sure, sure. I, I found erase. what they had to yeah. be relatively compelling. Yeah, um, we can
2: kind of redirect maybe a little bit if you maybe want to re-repose or go a different direction. I'm fine with that.
0: Yeah, sure. I, my my finishing thought is just, and I can post them in the in the yeah. Comments no, no, go it. ahead. Yeah, there. sure. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say that they they present some very interesting cases that the second that you have anything that selection is acting upon that that is you know coherent as as a like biochemical slurry, I suppose. Uh-huh. You start getting a selection for this very very basal form of communication it, they had some physicists and stuff it's a little bit over my head because I'm pretty like macroscopic animal s- right. style studying but right. I, I'm going to try to worm my way through it, and I might make a video on it later because I I found it very interesting but when I wanted to ask you a question because sure, I agree please. with an yeah, evolution um so what do you make of all the hominids like in your worldview specifically how, yeah. what do you do
2: Well, let me let me be honest with you. I'm still kind of one of those guys where I'm looking for I'm really sifting through the better models of what kind of makes the most sense, because it, it is, you know, I understand. See, here's the thing. I don't like when people tell me I judge on consensus, like there's lots of things in our history that have been judged very incorrectly based upon consensus. So what I would rather do is look at the actual argumentation and the justification, see if there's any gaps or any, I I don't know, I'm trying to maybe being a little too stern with this, but philosophical deficiencies, things that that I feel that if they're going to convince me that this is the model of acceptance to me there's almost certain reconciliations that should probably be able to be made you know even to me as the layman you know i'm not even talking about scientist level but to the layman so to me in in my current kind of scope though i guess probably what i would say the model which seems to give me the most kind of uh understanding or, or or possibility is the idea that that mankind is its own kind of very unique thing like not even really like the neanderthals and and i know we found neanderthal i guess we found neanderthal uh code genomes in Mm -hmm. human dna tracking it back and and i don't have an issue with that because here's the thing from the evolutionary paradigm i don't see how we could necessarily prove or show evidence that either a neanderthals were just some selectively bred out portion of us a different race kind of like the pygmies you know i don't see why it couldn't necessarily just be that as much of an explanation as it could we came from neanderthals and i would lean towards thinking neanderthals came from us because of the genetics because they seem to be i guess maybe a more inferior stock and i found a couple papers one of them i think standing for truth maybe sent to me or maybe it was in one of his debates i don't remember but it was something talking about the uh genome meltdown of some species where like you know at a certain medic
0: entropy
2: yeah thank you yeah like at a certain point they're just like basically no longer viable for any type of survival and see for me that's a huge problem from the i'm sorry i'll finish up no no no
0: it's okay take your time Uh,
2: from from the evolutionary paradigm that's a bit of a problem for me because i would expect from the evolutionary paradigm that that wouldn't happen because they're kind of saying well no no no, we increase you know we increase in order we increase in information we we are are, there's adaptability you know the to me from the from the naturalistic evolutionary paradigm um extinction events should be less frequent like we should meet, see more, I guess, evolution instead of extinction, I guess, if that makes sense to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. And, and a lot of that, like a lot of those are really good questions. I, I want to briefly cover, so conceptually speaking in human evolution, most of the hominids lived concurrently with other hominids. Like humans are the exception to the rule and that right now we're the only like hominins that are still kicking around. Uh, the closest our, li- our closest living relative would would be the chimpanzee, um, but both humans and Neanderthals came from an ancestral hominid called Homo heidelbergensis. And part of the way that we know that is looking at the genetics, because while we can find Neanderthal DNA in human DNA, we've also managed to salvage it from Neanderthal remains because they didn't go extinct until relatively recently, looking at the grand scheme of things. And we find that they are ninety nine point seven percent related, like similar identical to the human genome, whereas humans are 99.9% similar to one another at like maximum difference. So we know that they're different enough to be like separate genetically, but at the same time, we know that we could interbreed. So there's this weird concept in species, like the concept of species in that, and you can actually just talk to the most scientists, most biologists about this. And they'll probably agree with you. If you're like, I think species are kind of arbitrary and they'll be like, yeah, because they kind of are like, we sometimes will group species by being reproductive isolated. Sometimes it'll be because they're geologically isolated, but can actually just interbreed like tigers and lions, for instance. Uh, polar bears and, and grizzly bears are indeed very different genetically, but they can produce offspring, the, the growler bear. Um, sometimes porpoises can can do so with porpoises that are outside their own genera. It's It's this very weird deal where sometimes like you know, life uh, finds a way.
2: <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, Absolutely. So, so, yeah, there's there's all these weird little little nitpicks that happen in genetics because we we don't wholly understand um, what makes compatibility different when we swap around in families or in genera or in order even um so it's it's interesting to kind of consider it from that perspective with genetic entropy standing and i have had it out on that one a few times um genetic entropy is the creationist term for error catastrophe which is like the 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 biology terminology for it um and it's never been observed so it's kind of a theoretical idea that okay well we might be undergoing some kind of degradation and sometimes i'll talk to creationists and they'll be like look at humans we're getting dumber we're getting weaker we're getting sicker um and my answer to that would be Yes, of course, we have medicine. Like we we are the only species that has taken natural selection into our own hands. And when we have a sick individual, we heal them and we take care of them. And and we're intelligent enough to, to do so outside of just helping them out until they die like neanderthals did like we know they dragged their dead around because they they cared about them and some monkeys and and chimpanzees do this as well they're they're very empathetic so i'm sort of of the school that there's this there's this big gradient like across the, the the tree of life when it comes to because i would agree with you that humans are unique in many cases but many other animals are very unique in their own way um mantis shrimp have 12 cones we have three so they can see like four times the color that we can see what are all what are what all are we missing out on you know um so there are there are all of these interesting little bits about that that i'm kind of like i see the the world is very old as you know and so i look at the great age of the earth and I, i look at evolutionary theory that says things should change morphologically over time in response to their environment and then i go i track it backwards like in my head this is how i justify it to myself how it makes sense to me Um, And I look at all the hominids and I see them slowly get more and more basal as they go deeper in time and then you look at you arrive at something that just looks kind of like a chimpanzee, and it's in the same part of the world and it's in the same kind of environment and the same things are changing at relatively different rates. Um, And then you arrive you corroborate that with genetics and you're like well if that's the case then our closest living relative should be something that's rather chimp like. Um, and then it is. So th- those are the kinds of things that I'm like, it it clicks with me, you know, so I'm, I'm eager to hear your perspective on that. Well,
2: you, when you say it is like we check that and it is it, Can you clarify that a little bit?
0: Yes. So no matter which metric you measure similarity via genetics, because I think both of us could agree. I think everyone in the audience could agree that paternity tests are accurate to 99.99 percent. They hold right. up in court. That's how accurate they are. So. Paternity tests dictate who is the father, right? It it tells us how related one human is to another. You would also do that with your dog. You can send your dog's DNA in and you can look for certain markers and find out what breeds make your dog up. So there's this general idea of genetics and relatedness are intermingled to one another. So with that in mind, if we're looking at how species are related and creationists do this too within their kinds, right? So they might do this within the cat kind and say, okay, which ones are in and which ones are out? Um, cause you get some things that look like they might be in like hyenas cause a hyena looks kind of like a cat dog. It's like, is it in the cat kind or is it in the dog kind or and in its own kind Um, and so creationists will build these trees as well looking at genetics to find out what's more related to what which ones can fall into the same category because they're so dang similar genetically you just can't argue otherwise Um, and humans are more similar to chimpanzees when we're comparing the entire genome which is basically what you do with the paternity test except instead of comparing the whole genome you compare set markers that are known to vary a lot in humans
2: right um, yeah, and th- that's why i was I, I had a little bit of an issue with that in terms of the comparison because it seems like they had to well had to they just did they kind of ignored like because the chimps genome is actually larger than ours and, they, and you know the, the, and you know the 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 genome the genome information like i mean it's a massive difference and this is why i have an issue with the argument from similarity is because and if you don't mind maybe i can read this to you no please
0: please the, by all means i have just monologued so please uh, no
2: me. it's fine this this is an article um from dr fuzz rana a phd biochemist um and he had uh, collected a paper uh from uh matthias krings um and it was the neanderthal dna sequencing and the origin of modern humans and uh this was taken from the report that says um uh, researchers conducted uh, first studies on three distinct specimens that date between. and This is talking about Neanderthals, th- between 30,000 and possibly 100,000 years in age, from three lo- locations in the Neanderthals range: Germany, Russia, and Croatia. So, as you were saying, they're kind of they're geographically separated, right? They're not they're not necessarily interbreeding ready. They're completely separated from each other, different areas. And it says the DNA sequences obtained for all three Neanderthal specimens display remarkable agreement with one another in fact the DNA sequences vary only about 3.7 percent the sequence diversity compared favorably to that measured for modern humans 3.4 percent such similarity within the species but dissimilarity between the species tends to indicate that these animals did not actually make the genetic evolutionary contribution to humans so so when we're talking about like similarities and like and kind of look at I, I kind of looked into this just lightly today like our differences between the gorillas like Mm -hmm. our differences between the gorillas is basically the same amount of difference between the chimps and the gorillas or the uh, uh several of the other ape species to the to the gorillas yet the difference between the chimpanzee and the gorillas they're still very similar creatures they have the same amount of genetic you know genome information differences you know to us but they're, you know, they live on all fours. They don't have the same intelligence factors. You know, they're vegetarian, all these things. They don't walk upright, you know. So I, I have an issue. If if an assumption is being built around things like that are basically just morpholo- morphology and similarities, I, I don't see that that's really proof of anything unless, unless you're presupposing and can prove naturalism as the hidden premise of the argument. And I guess that's maybe where I'm stumbling.
0: So I, I wanna ask you though, if if you were to take that concept apply it to humans you would you would think that it would work because that's indeed how we tell which humans are related do they look similar Ah, you got your father's eyes um and are they genetically similar
2: well but yeah we don't rely upon that for we do
0: there's no other way to tell there's no other way to tell paternity other than genetics that's that's well.
2: okay yeah but not the not the morphological appearance yes
0: yes i agree with you i'm i'm mostly i'm mostly arguing that it's it's parsimony, right? So science is, as I'm sure you know, it's it's very much built on different fields agreeing in areas where they cross, right? right. So in in geology, right, we we get very similar dates when we look at the rocks that we find hominid fossils in, as right. we do when we track back divergence times based off of mutation rates. So those right. two things are completely separate; they've got nothing to do with each other, and yet you can still get a very, very close match. And of course, they're, they're not gonna be like identical identical. I think it's within like 100,000 years or something like right. that. Um, um, but, but for by and large, they're very, very um, uh, helpful to one another in, in that you would think that if it weren't the case, like, and you, those are just two methods you add in like ice core dating or dendrochronology or something else. And you're like, okay, well, these are definitely old Um, And we find them sequentially and they're changing in the same order that it looks like we're seeing new traits emerge genetically when we analyze the genome. Well, Um, you you kind
2: of say they're changing, but again, it's kind of a little bit more of that insertion again, you know, like, like, um, like for just back to the Neanderthal, just real quick, like if they are different species, like if, if that, I mean, and again, you kind of said we, we muddle that word a bit. Cause we don't really have. Any
0: yeah. Species yes. Yes, we do.
2: <laughs> but, but you know, like, like, in ter- I would almost expect, and, and I'm using this word tongue in cheek, but I would almost expect that there would be a little bit more specificity into that because and the reason I say that is because like if it was a different species that would be a that would be an incredible discovery because as we understand when we have very very similar species like I don't know the ligers or the mules, you know, and we managed to get them to breed because they just so happen to still be genetically compatible. We tend to get infertile or, you know, sterile stock, you know, we can't do anything with that. It seems so. It, it's just when, when the paradigm is telling me, okay, Neanderthals bred out humans and humans interbred with Neanderthals, that seems less probable even from the evolutionary paradigm than the humans bred out neanderthals like
0: yeah you're touching on a cool question because like that's an argument in anthropology right now as to whether or not like that's a current debate whether or not neanderthals should be it's a current debate in
2: my own brain
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is fair because I, i i get where you're coming from and a lot of people are like okay well you know, what, what constitutes a different species? Like it comes down to the muddy, like we said, the muddiness of that term. Um, generally speaking, it's, it's because they have morphologic uniqueness. So for instance, humans are the only hominid that has a chin. We're the only ones. We also have brain cases that are much smaller than Neanderthals. We have a, a different like limb ratio, which is very unique. So you, there you've got genetic uniqueness and you've got morphologic uniqueness. And yet we know for a fact that they could interbreed. So they're like, they're the question. You know, it would be very similar to looking at polar bears and grizzly bears, which can indeed make a growler bear, which to my knowledge, isn't sterile. Um, right. It may be, but I don't think so. They're I, yeah,
2: I, I don't know how, how far off, you know, on the genetic markers they actually are to where, you know, and that would be the interesting thing is we don't even know what that line is. You know, like, what is that line in the genetic code that makes it a different species?
0: Yeah, there, I don't think it exists is the thing. Well, it might not.
2: And it might not. But, but it, it kind of still ends up then kind of leaving this really huge open-ended question. I mean, is, are we really truly talking about, you know, a, a, a descendancy? Like, like, I mean, is this, it, because it looks the same, because uh, let me, let me try to give an example. So, like how I kind of look at this. It's all right. I'm going to give you the dumb example first. Okay. That's sure. like, okay. So like digging up a tricycle and a bicycle and thinking one evolved from the other, or digging up a Chihuahua and a Great Dane and thinking one evolved from the other, you know, Or, or, you know, because they have similarities, we can, we can draw, we can assume lots of things. We could assume, number one, that they were just interbred and this happened to be one, you know, small segment of the genome information of that particular kind of creature. Or... We can go with a more naturalistic assumption that it was actually evolutionary. There was mutation, it was a driving factor. Information was added, that information was known what to do, and this thing was produced. But I guess, let me draw that all forward now to a big question I'd love to ask you from your expertise. Can I ever breed a flipper dog? Can I breed a dog that'll have flippers and go swimming with me in the ocean? Can, can, I, can I do that?
0: You know, if you had enough time I do believe that you could. I mean, and essentially, that's what we saw with pinnipeds, like dogs and pinnipeds. So seals and walruses, they share a common ancestor that that you know had a lot of traits. It was actually probably more dog-like. Well, no, I mean,
2: like, can, can I take a current modern-day dog, and not even a wolf dog, because the wolf has a stronger genetic, you know, complete genome. And this sure. is back to the genetic atrophy again. So, like, like we have uh, we have some dog breeds that are just. <laughs> Kind of a bit of a, a genetic nightmare, uh, you know. I, I mean, they don't, yeah, they don't, they don't survive long. They're generally not happy. They have lots of health issues. They're
0: like a mess. If yes.
2: they weren't, yeah. If we weren't there to make sure they survived, they would have gone extinct by right. now. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I look at things like that, and I think, you know, well, when we're digging up dead things and we're saying they look alike. Like how do we know? Like how do we know it's an evolutionary mutation-driven thing, or just some selective breeding? And the species were all kind of there, and then they just all kind of you know filtered down to what they yes. are. Because you know, I I just kind of see like like again. Let me just bring this back real quick. i know yes, please. On. Uh, to uh to a, a full blown christian-esque worldview okay so like god um creating a perfect ecosystem as i've heard kind of the naturalists say say, like well why didn't god create it perfect you know it just all kind of relies upon itself and pristine synchronicity and it just you know never falters that type thing And what I would say is that the adaptation, the the programming adaptation in the species to be able to speciate, to be able to fill vacant gaps in ecosystems was necessary for the survival of the species. Because what happens, if you have a perfect ecosystem, it's perfectly balanced, it's perfectly set up, and you just have one severe dynamic event, one dying out of one tiny species, the entire system crumbles You have to be able to create a system that's able to handle errors that work their way into the system, especially if you're in an environment where there's constantly entropy and breaking down and things like that. I yield.
0: Yeah, sure. So there's a lot, there's a lot to touch on there. So generally speaking, I want to touch on the dog thing first, because I've, I've, I feel like I've heard something a bit similar, but I think your, your example is, is somewhat unique in how it was presented. So artificial selection, the only difference between artificial selection, that is to say breeding and natural selection is that humans are taking on the role of natural selection and intentionally breeding for certain traits that we like. That's how we get all the domesticated animals that we have and domesticated crops and things of that right. nature. Natural selection does the same thing, except slower. And the decider of which traits should move on is entirely dictated by what works well in that given environment. So if you have a chimpanzee, like let's take, let's look at it in actual frame of how did humans evolve according to conventional science. So we have this, this stock population of Sehalanthropus tchadensis. They look very much like chimps. They probably acted very much like chimps and they lived on the East Af- Eastern African rift. The rifts split apart, though, and we can tell based off of rock and soil samples that prior to this split, when the eastern African rift kind of moved slightly away, um, this area was big on rainforests. Now, if you're a tree climbing ape, rainforests are awesome, but the second the trees are gone, hoo boy. What you need is you need to be able to, to get around safely on all fours or alternatively you can stand up and see the predators that are coming at you. And what we see is right after 7 million years ago, 13 to 7 million, depending if you're looking at divergence or speciation, what we see is this drastic change in habitat. And that's what drove the two populations, the one that would end up being chimps and the one that would end up being humans in their respective directions. The rainforest that chimps live in today is mostly unchanged than from from the, the the one that the stock ancestral population lived in, but the area that the human population was pulled from that eastern African area where we find all of the fossils, all the all of the early ones and many of the late ones, is bone dry. It's super arid. So what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to get around on two feet. You've got to be a very efficient walker and all. And, you know, just biomechanically speaking, two legs is more efficient than four as far as going long distances. This is why ostriches are one of the best long distance runners in the animal kingdom, mm. weirdly enough. Mm. Um, so what I'm basically well, saying But doesn't is that,
2: that mean then there had to be a species that just... I, I'm sorry. No, Matt, please. There had to please. be... Uh, how do I put this? I'm, I'm going to make a mess of this. Just bear with me. There had to be some no member of... There had to be some group of that group that had a little bit longer legs or something that, that they were somehow given the advantage type that like, it's not like the pressure well, was, if the pressure was just put on them and they had no mechanism to survive the pressure at all, then the pressure would have caused them to go extinct. Wouldn't it? So they kind of, there had to be, so there had to be someone in the group there or, or well, there had to be multiple members of the group that had this trait that would have, um spurred their evolution forward to carry forward this trait but if the population was kind of all the same when th- that would be an extinction event wouldn't it because none of them would now be able to bend to the pressure
0: potentially yes and that's how many species do go extinct you could ha- you could be okay. the most fit population of t-rexes in the world but once an asteroid strikes the surface of the planet there's no to eat, And it doesn't matter because all the plants are dead. So an excellent real life example to this is and I forget the island at the it's a it's a an oceanic island. Um, and there are humans that live on this island this is today this is what well, you can find it in any list of our humans still evolving and they'll present this people group, and they have this insane inordinate ability to hold their breath for long periods of time Olympic swimmers. I heard
2: about that yeah no they've basically evolved in the well they say they've evolved in the water which and I get what they're saying like basically they've accustomed themselves to lives in the water they've almost bred out characteristics to be able to be like Olympic swimmers and spend minutes no it isn't say they're almost fish people no it is I've seen that yeah
0: right and so so here's here's the key here's the key
2: I mean they don't have gills, no, they yeah. don't have flippers <laughs> and they don't have webbed hands but yeah, which you know. might
0: which might be nice and who knows if we get a water world type scenario maybe we'll right. get that down the line but the point I this I'm tying... Time- back because behavior in evolutionary theory behavior always precedes morphologic change because behavior is more flexible and it can be passed down so in social animals like primates we see a lot of of um behaviors that emerge very quickly and either they get passed on to the next generation and it becomes a quote-unquote culture this is frequently seen in like tool using chimpanzees um or um, it doesn't get passed on. And that behavior dies with its progenitor. So in the case of these individuals who are swimming out on this island, what we see is a group of people, and this is historical for that location, that what they do for their livelihood is they dive for their for their food. They wow. dive deep out in the water, they get bivalves, they get clams, whatever. So that's the behavior. The holding breath longer is, is something that is very slowly emerging because as you can imagine, the guys who can swim and bring in the most bring home the most bacon are probably the ones who are producing the most offspring. And they're sure. the ones who are surviving for longer because they're providing for them and theirs.
2: Yeah. So that's so that, that ancestral be an example population. Of Right.
0: Right. And so in this ancestral population, what we probably saw is, and this is total speculation, this is just me, like, for the sake of the argument saying this is a way it could have happened. We could have one individual, just one plucky young, say, helanthropus chedensis, who who peeks up over the grass, stands up on two legs, and the next time a predator comes, he's the one that doesn't get eaten. So He starts standing up more and more often. This is the behavior that's starting to sink in as he learns that this behavior prevents the fear and the trauma of almost getting eaten. Um, And and slowly and surely, his relatives or her relatives, if it's a female, start picking up on it. And you've got a whole group of, say, helanthropus chidensis that's spending more time on two feet. Maybe they survive, right? That aptitude for standing on two feet is going to be um, pressured, essentially. Right. So the ones who are doing it are getting eaten less and they're passing that behavior first onward. The second there's a mutation that exists to capitalize on that behavior. Um, and again, we're dealing with millions of years here for, for these mutations to occur. Well, and by and- the way, if I
2: may, yes, th- please. that is my issue, the millions of years. Because here's the thing. I, I tend to think that environmental pressures are usually pretty dynamic and quick and usually detrimental you know to a species like if their ecosystem goes south or something changes or one of their reliant you know partners in the ecosystem goes extinct you know there's this kind of cascade effect that can take place you know and so when I look at it and I say okay well these things needed to adapt and adapt quickly Because, you know, the pressures, the natural pressures that would have been put on them likely would have been quick. Now, and I'll try I'll try to go back to the Galapagos finches. You know, let's say the Galapagos finches only had one food source. Let's say there wasn't other potential food sources, other harder seeds or larger seeds that larger beaks could handle. Let's say that wasn't there. You know, well, the one single event, one single event of wiping out that one food source for those finches and they're all dead. Yeah,
0: that's it. And that's the fate of most species. Well, and that's
2: what I'm saying. So, if we're saying that, and here's my problem then, I guess this is where I'm going back to. If that's the fate of most species, like, why are we kind of believing that some species create, you know, I'm using this very generically but create the information to fill the gaps like and it's the kind of back to my same thing of like you know could we breed a flipper dog and, and the reason I say it that way is because yeah dogs we have forced basically into selective breeding to get all of these different traits really really quickly you know we've we've basically gotten dozens and dozens of breeds of dogs and what two 300 years something like that you know so we've been able to do with dogs relatively complex creatures tons of variations but we're not breeding anything in a dog that isn't already inside the genome of the wolf you you know like it's not like we're able to somehow breed out a non-wolf characteristic into a dog you know something that comes from a different phyla or a different you know uh, species or family or something like that we're only getting whatever was included in that genome and as we continue to do it as we continue to crossbreed those genomes are breaking down like our our pressure onto causing the the it's kind of like the the inbreeding the in, in problem you know like in certain parts of our countries and i'm sure this is something that's part of even your argument or your field of study certain groups of people will get together and maybe they're too small of a group. They'll inbreed too much and they'll just die out. They're just, you know, that's that genome, you know, meltdown situation. They just completely fall apart. So like all of us today, we're all super watered down, you know, from what we were, you know, to where, you know, basically the population we are today, the idea of inbreeding is a huge thing because our, our genetic information is so filtered down. That these types of uh, errors, these types of transcription errors that we add in through the inbreeding is just disastrous and fatal. But someone, you know, something with a stronger genome, bringing it back to the wolf, you know, an inbreeding scenario won't be as detrimental because you're still now starting back with the original species i guess from which you're getting all these other breeds from you understand what i'm saying
0: yeah yeah i i'm, I'm with you the, the difference though is with dog breeds right humans are selecting the traits and by and large the traits are aesthetic like there are some dogs that we train for doing specific job jobs like they're working oh yeah
2: ratters hunters fetchers, yeah, and, larpers and they, oh yeah and they take-
0: yeah, and they tend to be the species that in cities that have feral dog problems, if you take their mutts and you you look at their the which which breeds have led into their sort right. of classic mutt, it's always right. the ones that have been more bred for for physical prowess, not right. aesthetic prowess. So they would right. probably do okay if we let them loose in the wild. Right. I want to tell you about an interesting study I think you should look at. Sure. Yeah, please. There there's a population of wolves in northern in North America. Um I believe near alaska i want to say it's it's definitely that that northern area and um these these wolves traditionally hunt um in in, they used to traditionally hunt in the woods there the 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 local indian tribes and things like that used to talk about the wolves and hunting down the deer and seeing them when they did that etc etc um but because of how the climate is changing the deer have migrated to different locations and they they were Essentially, getting very emaciated, they stopped seeing mm. the wolves as often. It's all detailed in the study, uh, but the wolves have recently received a resurgence. And the interesting thing is, when we look at this wolf population, the wolves spend the majority of their time like elbow deep in water. They spend their time in in the tidal pools and in the on the coastline in the ocean, and they hunt fish. And mm. their paws have webs on them. They've got the, the webbiest of all the webbiest paws of all the wolves. Um, which is something that we, to my knowledge, don't see in any other Canid like across the planet. There are no
2: aquatic. Well, no, I, I've seen some dog breeds that do have webbed feet, and in fact, even I've even seen. Uh, in fact, my mom has a golden retriever that we swear. Has I've
0: got webbed. two goldens she, myself. Yeah,
2: the gold gol- and the goldens love the water. You know, goldens love to jump in the water, the pools, and stuff like that. And and uh, I've had dog breeds that do kind of have that, and and I can understand that even type of trait, you know, being inherent. Again, it's inside the wolf. You know, to me, it's inside the wolf. It's there. You know, like the fact that some of those wolves gravitated towards the water may are they swimming? Like are they swimming after the fish? Or are they just kind of like sitting there waiting for the fish to swim by type thing? Like I mean, are they opportunistic predators or are they like
0: Yeah my To my knowledge, the fish make up the majority of their diet. So I think they hunt But like, I
2: mean, are they using the webbed feet or is it just kind of like they happen to have webbed feet?
0: Yes, they're using them. They're okay.
2: Them. Okay, so those those animals happen to gravitate towards that environmental. Pressure.
0: Yeah, they have like a pressure, right? And okay. that's all I'm talking about. Like, I would be interested in which which trait. So
2: whichever dogs could catch the fish won. <laughs> they, they stuck around, right? Basically, yeah,
0: because the deer were gone, and so the ones that were better at catching the fish caught the fish, and the ones that had more webs right. on their feet. Tended, and, and you're right, that probably does exist in the ancestral wolf population because we obviously bred it into our water dogs. Right, I have two goldens right. myself, very webbed well, feet.
2: Well, and I guess maybe to to ask, ask you this question real quick then, could we, mm-hmm. of that population of, of the, the wolves that have only webbed feet, could we get non-webbed feet wolves out of them again?
0: Yeah, you probably could.
2: Okay. yeah you you probably could
0: and and you know there's this concept because you don't
2: think that information's lost like it's still there it's just what dormant maybe or
0: yeah it depends so in humans right i'm sure you've you've seen um or actually i think this is a better example so in whales and dolphins and cetaceans Um, when they're undergoing embryologic development, there is a period in the first couple of weeks when they're just an itty-bitty teeny little pea-sized embryo where they have hind limb buds. And when we we compare this itty-bitty little tiny pea-sized embryo to that of a human or that of a dog or whatever, they all have limb buds of the same size. They're not reduced or anything like that. They're just limb buds. It's what's supposed to turn into their hind feet. But dolphins actually have a gene that silences those limb buds and stops them from developing. So they come out and then they go back in, and then you have dolphins that don't have hind legs. Um, So the the point being, yes, most of the things that re-emerge in populations that were there in an ancestral population, um, they they just never really went away. They weren't necessarily Mm. selected against because they didn't really harm anything. Mm. Um, That being said, embryologically, it would be metabolically better if dolphins didn't waste energy on making those limb buds and then Mm. eliminating them. Um, so, and, and what that leads into my next point, which is that I can't think of it. And I had a, I had a, a professor who put it to me this way and it, she was like, it was going to be a long conversation, but you can pretty much take any trait that any organism has and you can walk it back and you can see what first one it emerged in the fossil record right. and then which precursors maybe it came from. Well, so right. And that's, that's kind of my things point. like that.
2: Yeah. And that's kind of my point is like, we see a precursor we see a um, I guess a more complete version of the information as we like backtrack. So like like we get back, we go okay. further back it, it, it seems like it seems like we have a more, I guess you would almost, and again, I'm, I'm using an assumptive language here, but a more complete, a more stable genome. I mean even from the law of entropy and of course even the second law of thermodynamics, that's what I would expect to see. I would expect to find that the information, the, the caliber of information is a little bit more pristine, hasn't gone through as many potential disastrous mutations or transcription errors over the time. So it's a little bit more stable, I guess, maybe.
0: Well, I, I would disagree with that because I think there are a lot of traits that we can look at that exist today in organisms that are much more complete or better than they were in previous organisms. Like- well, and and again,
2: that's my point though, because because now what we're saying is we're saying these morphological differences violate the law of atrophy and thermodynamics. And I guess I, I to me I'm am not I don't mean to throw this at you, but I think you've made an extraordinary claim, and I need extraordinary evidence. Well,
0: <laughs> so- sir, I- I will, I will, I will do you, um, that service. First of all, the second law of thermodynamics applies to closed systems and in the world of physics, at least when I took physics, but I took physics like two years ago. So to my knowledge, um, the earth is considered an open system because the sun is feeding into it. So most organisms on this planet like actually tend to there's a, two interesting papers that i'm going to link in the description here and that i can send to you as well or send to james sure. to you yeah. um that they're they're papers by physicists and the argument that they make i think they're like 2018-2019 papers so fairly recent the argument that they make is that one of the reasons why life would be inevitable quote unquote so long as the proper ingredients for the primordial soup for lack of a better term were there is because the goal of entropy is is to release heat right to transfer energy to heat Um, and nothing is better than doing that than weirdly enough the structures of rna and dna like by by temporarily organizing your your chaos you end up with more chaos in the long run is the very rudimentary argument that they make Uh, Um, i'm really dumbing it down but that's the argument that they make in it and they have all these like Wacko equations that
2: that sounds bizarre I-,
0: <laughs>
2: I would be willing to look at that because right now it sounds like reaching. <laughs> but I would be willing to look at it.
0: See, you would think that, but like in chemistry, when we have a soup of chemicals, like I'm not, not even organic chemicals, any kind of chemicals, uh-huh. what those chemicals do is they self-arrange into their most stable form. Now, whether that is by degrading into a more stable form or binding to form something that's less unstable, um, that's just like a, a trait of chemicals is that they want to be quote unquote, more stable. They don't want to break down. So it would make, it makes sense to me that the reason that they're doing that even chemicals if chemicals follow that rule and then eventually degrade down the line releasing a lot of heat and in turn amplifying the entropy that wouldn't have been as intense if they just stayed chaotic in the beginning um it, it kind of makes sense to me that that would apply well, in sense to biology but i'll see i'm eager to hear your opinions on the paper i I've, I've not completely read them because they are sure. very much out of my <laughs>
2: um view, yeah but... and and you know once we're kind of getting down to that level of the evolutionary paradigm i see even more problems than kind of the rest and i don't i mean i don't want to turn this into a whole abiogenesis thing but you know to me personally and and i've seen multiple phds state this you know when we're doing experimentation about original life protein synthesis or even just the rna world type experiments we're not in any way replicating what prebiotic earth looked like based upon our best knowledge we're kind of jimmy rigging the environment, and basically inserting intelligence. So The best example for me is the homochiral problem, which is that Mm. you have to have purified, filtered, all left-handed amino acids before you even can do anything at all. And the first experiment to generate amino acids basically created a bunch of left-handed and right-handed amino acids inside a whole bunch of toxic soup. So basically just completely, fundamentally, absolutely unusable. I mean, even if it wasn't surrounded by a bunch of toxic mass, you know, even the structure itself was not uh, homochiral so that it could actually even be used for any type of protein synthesis or folding whatsoever. So that's, I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, no. I was gonna say. I think I would love to have a chat with you at some point about abiogenesis because sure. I, I, I'm very loosey goosey on my biochem, like with regard.
2: Well, to Well, like- this is all new to me. This is all stuff in the last two weeks because I met some awesome brothers that have kind of been filling me in on it. So this is all kind of new to me. But I don't want to yeah, yeah. take up. Yeah, I don't want to turn this into an abiogenesis thing anyway. Um, really, what I wanted to do, if maybe we could, because maybe to finish up, uh, James, how much time do we have here?
1: Say so normally we would go into the QA in the next few minutes.
2: Um can can I maybe just touch on one more topic, see if we can carry this this through one. If Eric quick thing, has got do... the time, I've got the
0: I've time. I've got all the time in the world, James. Okay.
2: Okay, so let's just let's just run through this real quick. And it's kind of one of my bigger, I guess, I, I guess you would call it maybe philosophical concerns from the paradigm. And it has to do with kind of whether or not either side is taking consideration of like confirmation bias and like Mm -hmm. so like for instance like just to kind of give an example for like darwin and i know darwin of course is given a lot of credit for the emergence and of course the refining of the evolutionary theory but it's not like you know it's not like he was the first one you know his grandfather erasmus i think was his name you know he wrote a book, uh, what is it called? zoomia or something like that? Zoonomia? Something Zomalia like that. or something Yeah, like that. something. And that was kind of some progenitor. That, that, was, that was some information, basically, his idea on... And I know atheists love to throw at us, indoctrination, indoctrination, but I think maybe Darwin had a little bit of that, you know, training in that type of way of thinking. So I almost feel like when he was going out looking for things, there might have been... A little bit of confirmation bias there. And that's okay. I don't mind I almost expect it. You know, I almost look for it in what scientists might say or their papers, their arguments, or their conclusions. I almost anticipate to see some bias. What but what I look for in order to see those people that are really actively tackling their bias is if they're willing to kind of attribute or give falsification criteria to their theories like are they evangelizing are they preaching are they really pursuing truth are they really interested in whether or not this is actually true and so i guess maybe what i'm seeing is if if it is confirmation bias how do we what mechanism do we have in the evolutionary theory to falsify it like what what do you think maybe we could Discover that's actually practical or even realistic that might show this is all just nonsense like we've been kind of filling the Mm gap with naturalism and assumptions and we shouldn't have been doing that and now we should leave it more open-ended because again i don't expect science to make a conclusion uh you know god did it or god didn't do it i never expect that to appear in any paper either to the positive or to the negative if there's anything beyond what science can discover, that's going to be up to us to draw our deductive and inductive conclusions. You know. But, but with that, I'll yield. Please go ahead.
0: Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. Yeah, so with Darwin so obviously we have Lamarck who came along kind of initially and he was like, yeah, you have Linnaeus who's the father of taxonomy and Lamarck and Lamarck was like, yeah, things tend to inherit the things that the morphologic things that their parents did. Like the giraffe that stretches his neck up really tall and then, you know, passes it to his or her offspring. And then they already have that minimum of a neck. So you have all of these kind of proto ideas and Erasmus was very similar. He had no idea about natural selection. He kind of touched on heredity. Touched on it.
2: Yeah, it kinda yeah, touched he, on it. Yeah. It was
0: a little bit on heredity and a little bit of like a little of natural selection, but Darwin honed it and did all of that. I
2: I called it speciation light is, is Yeah, light.
0: sure, sure. I think that's I think that's fair enough. But Darwin if, looking into Darwin's life is very interesting because he was a he was a devout Christian way past he wrote Origin. Um, And he also was almost going to be an Anglican preacher for the majority of his young life before he on, he was very into like collecting insects and birds and things like that, which is why he took the job to go on the Beagle. It wasn't his intent to write Forge of Species necessarily when he went on that trip, Um, but he took with him the book written by Charles Lyell um, on uh, Principia of geology or whatever. And he was like, oh my gosh, like the earth might be very old what's up with species how do they come how do they go um and so while i think that bias is inherent to everyone when how they in, given how they interpret things i don't think that it was especially so um with darwin outside of just the fact that he was like into that kind of thing like that was like his jam he was like in the biology fandom um but to take that a bit further within the realm of anthropology there have been f- there's been fight after fight after fight after fight on which traits came first who humans are directly related to whether or not and there of course there's some very racist terrible things that went on in the beginning of anthropology as there was some very Mm. terrible racist i
2: read about some of that today i was a little disgusted
0: it's, it's, (laughs) it's awful but you know fortunately humans are not great about not being racist sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but there are all of these different ideas that, you know, the, the, the one that sticks in my head is was it bipedality first or big brain first? Mm. And this anthropologist went back and forth and back and forth. They were both, both sides were sure of their conclusion of which right. evolved first. But what decided it was finding a fossil in a geologic layer that made it parsimonious that bipedality did indeed emerge first there was no other way to piece the puzzle together for lack of a better term right. um, and have big brains as, as the emergent quality right. so anthropology is basically just forensics over millions of years i right. don't think that like for me the, the kicker w- is always um how on earth can we separate humans from the other apes in a standard way that we can apply to other animals? Because yeah. to my knowledge, we can't do it. Now, if someone wants to come up to me and say, I think humans are are spiritually special, but physically I do agree that we are indeed apes. We share all of the same characteristics of apes. Um, even even if they didn't want to go so far as to be like, I don't think we evolved, to, even if you wouldn't take that step, um, I would be like, we, we do indeed share common ground on that. I'm okay with that. I think that, that humans, I'm, I, I mean, I would obviously push them on the evolution thing. I, yeah,
2: know, I, I think I've had no issue. I think I've had no issue kind of even almost saying morphologically, if you want to classify us as course. apes, go for it. You know, yeah,
0: I, mean, I, I just, I, I have a hard, because I do run, and I very much appreciate hearing that from you, because I have a lot of conversations with folks who are just really not wanting that. And I'm like, I it's literally just like an anatomical. It's just, forestry.
2: it's literally just, yeah. yeah, it's just a morphological classification. It's irrelevant to me. Sure. I mean, I really, and, and, yeah.
0: and, and because I'm so into primates and things like that, in a conversation with that individual, I would take it a step further. And I would be like, I also think many of the things, humans do some things that are entirely unique. I would agree with that. I think a lot of animals do also do things that are entirely unique though um which makes our uniqueness not unique if that's kind of makes any sense um but there's also this gradient of like so people will say all right i'm an ape whatever but humans are special because morality um and the degree to which humans display morality is indeed very interesting and cool and awesome and, and in our compassion and cooperation and things like that um but there are so many cool studies out there where where we show that other primates and even other animals like cetaceans and corvids um, are cooperative and they mourn and they console and they reconcile and they innovate and of course it's a gradient so it's different yeah it's uh, a
2: spectrum it's a much lower spectrum but yeah i i, right, it, I yeah. that's Kind of the same thing when they play the name the trait argument. You know? Yeah,
0: and, and and so my thing with that is I look at that. I'm like, okay, it's all a gradient. And then people say, but how come humans are so far to this side on intelligence? Right. Where are the other ones? And that's when I point to the fossil record. And I say, they used to be here, but now they're not. Very similar to like a giraffe. Like giraffes are the only animals that have these really, really long necks. Why are they the last ones? Well, probably because of a slurry of different wild pressures. Uh, in part due to the fact that the current giraffe that we have was just the best at what it did. But when we look to the fossil record, we find all sorts of long-necked animals, with uh, including ones that are just giraffes with shorter necks. Um, so sometimes it just ends up that you have one lineage that outcompetes the rest for whatever reason, um, and, and manages to make a name for themselves with their specialized trait. And for humans, that trait was cognitive ability. Like our brains are just so dang big, <laughs> mm. um, for for better or worse. Um, but but the cool thing is. Well, but
2: bigness doesn't necessarily mean intelligence, though, true. right? I, I mean, because ravens. Yeah. Let's look at ravens. You know, they can yes. do some. I mean, ravens understand water displacement. For yeah, I mean, that's yeah, incredible. they're so
0: cool. Corvids are awesome. Bird people are the bird people in ecology, though. Are wild. They they think birds are always the smartest. Um, but yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry, oh, James. You finish that point. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say. Um, yeah, intelligence is body to brain ratio typically, so brain size with relation to how big the. It's relative to the body size, okay. um, which is also seen when we look backwards um, at the hominids, and we we find that in accordance with like okay once you reach a certain level we start seeing like como erectus using fire we find their bones and we find ash marks in the caves that they died in or you know tools and jewelry and things like that with heidelbergensis and neanderthalensis and all this stuff um and you're like what the heck was going on in these guys heads like you know the right. first dude who you know realized Ooh, fire keeps me warm was probably like this is <laughs> this is it
2: <laughs> right right um, no
0: but yeah, I I, I don't want to take up too much time. I had a blast talking, though. I really enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate
2: it. Yeah, I did too, Erica. Thank you. No, I did yeah. too. Well, thank you very much,
1: both of you. I want to remind you, folks, that both of the speakers are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more, what are you waiting for? You can right now. And very excited. We're going to jump into this Q&A. Also, there is an after show. We're willing to announce it no matter what, you could say, position or what walk of life somebody is coming from, we are willing to plug and put the after show links in the description. So John Maddox, Logical, plausible, Probable, is hosting one tonight. If you'd like to host one, no matter what walk of life you're from, for real, let us know and we will put it in the description for you. So thanks so much. Let's jump right into it. First one, this one comes in from Michael, the Canadian Atheist. Good to see you, Michael. says... James, you demand an evolution in an absolute fact of population genetics. Thanks for your kind words. Says, uh, I don't, it doesn't matter what you think. It's true. Yes, it is. I think so. That's for you, Smokey. They. That's like not said, an argument, Michael, sir. Okay.
2: <laughs> just to be sure <laughs> yeah. you heard it. Yeah, it that's yeah, what we call, sir. I, I know you might have. Hold on
1: a second. A- let, let me, just to be sure everybody heard it because I read it fast. Evolution is an absolute fact of population genetics. Okay. That was it. Just like I said, I wanted to be sure everybody else heard it as well. (laughs) If you want to respond to it, you can.
2: Well yeah no we've already established that Michael has a lot of empty asserted faith in a lot of things including his belief and knowledge claims and he's kind of a little bit philosophically illiterate so um sir when you're ready to make an argument instead of an assertion we we can have a chat
1: That's right you guys have a rivalry don't you you guys We that, do sir yes of course team. iPhone <laughs> musings thanks for your positive sticker appreciate the positivity logical plausible probable here it is says don't miss the after show share your thoughts also says for erica do you know what formal prescriptive information is if so is such information in genetics
0: nope don't i don't know what that is I'm, I'm in the midst uh, LPP of going through your, your series of papers. <laughs> so hopefully I'll, hopefully I'll get there. Like, I feel like I've read the term. Um, but again, it's, it's very uh, genetics. My, my level is okay. Programming. My level is bad. Um, so I, I will hopefully get back to you on that. I want to have another conversation with John Maddox. I I did enjoy our last chat. And um, once I'm up to date on his papers, then a little bit more adept at speaking the programming lingo, I would love to, uh, Engage once more.
2: Maddox is my boy. Gotcha. And
1: Anthony Aguilar, thanks for your statements that hello all, longtime lurker. I like that. Created a <laughs> channel and subscribed so I could comment. Love the channel and these science debates with Erica in particular. You got a fan out there, Erica. That's very sweet. Next up, Stupid Whore Energy is in the building. No. She says HMGA2. Is the name of the gene that is responsible for the finch beak? Different sizes are due to variants. I don't know if that was meant to mean variations, but says it has nothing variants. to do with skull size in humans.
2: No, it's the yeah. No, she's wrong. It, it's it, I'll pull the paper. It's it's the, the exact same gene when they when they decoded the genome. She just doesn't know what she's talking about, but that's okay.
1: Next. Don't worry, she's got plenty more for you. Cijfredo, sure, I bet she does. Cijfredo, thanks for your question, said, Erica, are science and religion mutually exclusive, or can anyone be a religious scientist? Does something like evolution make this notion implausible?
0: You know what? I, I have long considered that, and I've heard people from both ends of the spectrum give their thoughts on it, and for me personally... I think that they can absolutely have lived happily side by side. I think there are a lot of excellent scientists from a lot of very different walks of life out there. Um- who all do some really great work I think I think if you're going to be in biology typically knowing evolution tends to be good especially if you're going into like pathology or virology or anything like that where evolution plays a very large role in uh, anticipating disease and things of that nature um but that being said I mean I man, I used to be like a really, really diehard theistic evolutionist so and and it wasn't science that ever impacted my, my thoughts on the matter. So I absolutely believe that those things can go hand in hand. Look at like Francis Miller, um, of the Human Genome Project, you've got like uh, Theodosius Dobzhansky, he was another big one. There are tons of awesome folks out there, even evolutionary biologists who also have their faith. And I think that's awesome
1: really cool and thanks for your question mr cluck or see didn't see a question but i know you have one coming up so danish debater thanks for your question says erica congratulations james erica james james nice tone going on tone i don't know thank you and hope the entire debate will be pleasant and informative erica can we see the papers (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, which
0: papers are we talking about i'm, I'm going to think, i have my little list to the side here of the ones that i owe in the chat um so as soon as i'm done with the q a or i guess i have to wait until this is posted um but i'll i'll put the, i'll throw them up there oh um, they,
1: yes. they also corrected they said that was they said sorry what i meant to say is james erica and smoky thanks to all three so thanks for that appreciate it oh, okay james cool <laughs> And uh, it's get, okay, I, I,
2: I felt I was being left out. It's all right,
1: no, <laughs> very, you're very loved. Gadgete, <laughs> thanks for your question. Says the language is complex chemistry, the emergence of biology is not so crazy when you think hydrogen and oxygen, two gases, can form something wet.
2: Oh, wow, yeah, dude, try to come and debate that trash in my channel sometimes, please. We got, we got a couple chemists and some guys that'd love to talk to you.
1: Feisty. And Sigifredos Rabia, thanks for your other question. says, Erica, did Australopithecus ever really exist if they were hominids the whole time? Are, why are we not called Australopithecus sapiens versus homo genus?
0: That's a really good question. I think generally speaking, when we're like, you'll remember the chart that I showed in in my presentation that shows a whole lot of overlap with regard to um, the kind of the who's who, depending on their ratio of traits. Um, So when we look at things, like when you hear someone say we're related to Lucy, we're, we might be but we also the, the reason they give them that specific genus and species name is because there it might also be an organism that we haven't found yet that was very similar to Australopithecus afarensis um so it's it's kind of a dicey situation because we're working with an incomplete fossil record and you can't very well give everything the genus homo right so what we essentially do is is separated out by trait ratios and kind of put a pin in it <laughs> which i you know i mean a lot of people complain about how science changes around a lot um i think that's great i think science should change when new information comes to life or comes to light i think it's one of the very few uh, aspects of life that should be should be given a free pass to change so long as they weren't coming out initially and being like this is it this is for sure the case which unfortunately a lot of pop science articles do frequently, um, which is why I always recommend to read the original paper. Um, But long story short, um, taxonomy is complicated.
1: Gotcha. And look at the the traits. You got it. Thank you. And Germania, thanks for your question. Said, this is, I think for Smokey, says, if evolution was garbage, how would that resolve all the bloodshed contradictions and flawed logic in the Bible? Such as God knowing atheists will be damned to eternal hell, yet <sighs> making them anyway.
2: Yeah, you're you're a predestinarian. You just have a very low-witted and unintellectual perspective of both reality and the God claims. If you'd like to unpack it, you're welcome to come to my channel. But you're disastrously undereducated on the things which you're claiming to reject.
1: Gotcha. And Happy dude, thanks for your super chat. Said my favorite channel, ignore the haters. Appreciate that. And I can assure you, the haters only make me more motivated. So we are excited about the future and we appreciate that positivity. Ian (laughs) Chen, thanks for your super chat. Said Erica, great debate. You're so articulate. Thumbs up.
0: (laughs) Ian, Ian is awesome, dude. He, he's like absolutely one of the most based people I know. So very, thank you, Ian. Continue to be the way that you are.
1: Gotcha. And thanks for your question statement from Mr. Cluck says, Smokey, what is the difference between faith and fact? Please explain.
2: Please. Oh, gosh, what is with these questions tonight, guys? Come on. Okay, faith. Faith is nothing more than confidence. They're, they're, you know, you believe things based upon confidence. Facts are something that exists in the natural world. You can believe or disbelieve a fact. You know, but this is all about individual epistemology. You're asking non-comparative questions here, trying to get an answer. It's nonsense to me.
1: Gotcha. And thanks so much. Appreciate your question. This one comes in from Blue Heron asks, if you found the evidence for evolution compelling, would you be okay with being an evolution accepting Christian?
2: Uh, Is that for me? Yes. Or is that for her?
1: Did I, maybe I said that wrong. That's, I think that's for you. Smokey, if you found the evidence for evolution compelling, would you be okay with being an evolution accepting Christian?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have anything inside my book that particularly excludes that. So I suppose, yeah, if I could actually find the I don't find the evidence to be compelling enough, I feel it to be kind of just a bunch of assumptions laid on top of assumptions stacked on top of assumptions. And then when you put all the assumptions together, you call it evidence. And I guess I guess I just have a problem with that.
1: Gotcha. And thanks so much for your question. This one, this is a logical, plausible, probable says open mic after show timed responses before group discussion. Look for the link in the chat. That's true. Just do me a favor. Don't post it. Don't copy and paste it. Uh, we, that <laughs> no spam. Us. Yeah. We're, we, uh, we're pretty flexible, easy going. but if you can help us out, Jeff soul, thanks for your question says, this is a crucial service for everyone. Thank you. Appreciate that, Jeff. Really do. The positivity seriously means a lot, folks. Love it. Danish Debater, thanks for your question, said Has anyone seen CDK007's quote, evolution is a blind watchmaker video? Just because Smokey mentioned try slash bicycles, I find it a fun and informative simulation
2: uh yeah i haven't checked out that particular video no i have not
1: gotcha and mothra j disco thanks for your super chat said eric rivals are in raw on educating creationists love the channel james keep it up thanks for that mothra you got a fan erica
0: mothra is too sweet there are a lot of sweethearts out there you guys better stop it or i will find you and i will give you a hug
1: gotcha and jungle (laughs) jargon thank you for your statement Question says, Erica, since copying errors in the genome result in sideways variation plus backwards loss of function, where is the forward mechanism for evolution?
0: Well, it depends on the environment. That's the thing. Evolution is entirely dependent on mutation meets selection and what typically dictates selection is environment. So duplication under some circumstances can indeed be a bad thing just as frame shifts can or deletions, but they can also be good things and help you out if the proper pressures are at hand and if you have like the necessary material kind of like if there's this idea of precursor mutations where it's like if you've got a three-parter we like can need all three aspects to create, I don't know, a flagella. Um, having the first two, they're kind of silenced and don't really do anything to harm you. But the third activates all three. Um, there's, a, I think there's a better term for it and I'm just messing it up. I need someone to like give me a, a like corrections corner on that. But um, yeah, that's that's what I would say. I would say it's very dependent. I think that fitness is frequently misunderstood and and environment is often downplayed.
1: Gotcha. And thanks for your question from Roadstar1602 says, Erica's superpower is making any conversation civil.
0: Oh, that's sweet. Uh, listen, you know, i I I think that people hopefully know me well enough by now to know that I genuinely just enjoy the conversation. Um, and and that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so I'm not trying to like hurt anybody's feelings. It's or, it's, it's more it, a
2: statement on how much of a jerk I am and that you made <laughs> it civil. So it's that's probably Oh what it
0: smokey, is. I had a great time. <laughs> You were very sweet to me.
2: I tried. I tried very hard.
0: I know. I can I can ooh, I rile people up sometimes. <laughs>
1: Next, logical, plausible, probable strikes again. Says after show kicks off five minutes after the debate ends. Absolutely, that's linked in the description. And as mentioned, folks, no matter what walk of life you from you come from, we will link you in the description. If you have an after show, just let us know. Mothra J Disco, thanks for your question. Said we have artifacts that are ten thousand years old. So
2: okay, it's for you, Smokey. Okay. <laughs> I, well, I, am not, I, I, what does he think? I'm still young earth. Is that what he thinks? Maybe. Yeah. I I don't, I, I guess I don't care.
1: Maybe next up Gregory Salyers. Thanks for your question said, if he is concerned about inbreeding, then how do you explain Adam and Eve?
2: Well, again, that was that was me back to making my point that at some point our genetic information was really really pristine, like prime stock. You know, didn't have as many mutations, errors. All of the races of mankind were ultimately filtered down into these people. So inbreeding was not an issue until the genome got filtered down, watered down to a certain point where those errors in the transcription through inbreeding would be an issue. That's my perspective. Gotcha.
1: And thanks so much for your. Question from Andy McElRavi. Appreciate it. Says, it seems like Smokey mostly believes in evolution and is just afraid to let go of his God belief for philosophical reasons. I don't, great I don't job. Need. Hold on. I'm not done insulting you. <laughs> great job. <No>, I'm kidding. Then <laughs> they, they finished with great job, Erica. Okay.
2: <laughs> okay, Now you have to reread it because you (laughs) You messed. (laughs) I'm really tired and you messed up my brain. Now you got to reread it. He said it seems like Smokey mostly believes in evolution
1: and is just afraid to let go of his God belief for philosophical reasons. And great job, Erica.
2: Yeah, um, nothing about evolution or science precludes or includes God at all. So so evolution has no statement on the matter whatsoever. Now, if evolution fails to answer things naturalistically, that behooves me to start looking for non-naturalistic explanations. And I think I'm certainly approved for doing so. So I, I the, just the simple fact is that you guys wanna claim naturalism of the gaps, and you can just fill it with this blind, empty faith that someday naturalistic processes will explain it, doesn't mean you get to condescend to me for believing that intelligent agent is most likely essential for these processes to emerge. You're the irrational one, not me.
1: Gotcha. And Ezekiel Bred, Thanks for your question. Said Erica, is there a way God could fit into your worldview? Smokey? Is there a way evolution could fit into your worldview?
0: Um, Yes. Yeah. I, I, again, I used to be a very fervent theistic evolutionist. Um, I, I would consider myself agnostic or an agnostic atheist, I guess. I'm, I'm working through sort of the theology aspects of things um, and just seeing what I think. Um, I was, I was raised Christian and then I was like very like i said very into theistic evolution for quite some time after i left young earth um and so yeah i'm, I'm always open to new information and I, I think everyone's just trying to find out the truth um i hope that's what everyone's trying to find out
2: Got yeah i don't i don't seem to quite understand what this obsession is with the how like the how will necessarily even tell you whether or not there is a who you're gonna have to extrapolate From the information inside the how even with the basic information we have to get to it like atheists seem to have this idea like if like we somehow have to tell them the how and yet they don't and i guess that really kind of perplexes me because like you you know you're, you're telling us that we need to tell you how exactly how god did it in order for us to be able to validate god when we're saying the fact that there's no naturalistic method to explain it seems to allude to intelligence. This is a more rational, more direct interpretation of the information, in my opinion. Um, And by the way, just a quick side note in terms of any of the other people asking about whether or not evolutionary theory as it's presented or any of the data that's been presented so far is in any way ultimately contradictory to my worldview. No, I don't think evolution, based upon what it's trying to prove, has actually made its case, which is essentially naturalism. I don't think evolution has proved naturalism. And so I don't have to believe that.
1: Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one comes in. From Josiah Hansen says, Congrats to Erica. She was just nominated for Team Skeptic's Debunky Award in the non-flurf debunker division. I fought for your nomination, Team Erica.
0: Ugh, I'm honored. I I didn't even know I was I was up for the award, but I'm glad that I'm glad that you were fighting for me.
1: <laughs> Very special, exciting stuff, and stupid whore energy throws her. Hat oh, I bet into it's the for the me. Ring. Yeah, <laughs> I bet Again. it's for me. She says, actually, actually, Darwin started out as a big fan of William Paley's design argument
2: interesting well good for him why did he change could you have (laughs) you know i mean you know that that's a funny thing to say that and say that he was a fan what do you mean a fan like he read it because that's not what he landed on that's not what he proposed that's not what he pushed so what point are you making madam i yield
1: next up thanks for your question scott duke says i wish i had an intelligent question to ask so i'll just say thanks to james and thanks to my favorite science communicator erica
0: we all need to thank James on this day. James James hauls out here all the time and listens to all of us argue with each other and he puts up with it with a smile on his face. So give my good job, thank you, whatever compliment. Put it James's way. He deserves it.
1: That's nice of you. I have to pass it over to dearest Smokey. Don't worry, Smokey. You're not forgotten. Look at you in your picture. You look so sad. Your head is down. <laughs> next roy stagall thanks for your question says remember that time Smokey was right about anything yeah <laughs> me neither congrats erica and james stay sexy i appreciate yeah. that, roy, yeah, that I, I,
2: I love it when the cultists will actually send a super chat yeah it's okay bro it's okay, appreciate you.
1: Flume666, thanks for your super chat support. Didn't see a question attached, but let me know if you have one that you'd like me to read. Lunatic thinker says, love this channel. Smokey, I don't like your point of view, but I respect you being genuine in this discussion. Second law of thermodynamics only affects closed systems, by the way. <sighs> Yeah,
2: you can call it closed or open all you want. We still see in our universe that order breaks down. It doesn't increase in order, doesn't increase in specificity, everything breaks down. Now, whether or not you want to directly apply it to the law of thermodynamics or simply just generally the rule of atrophy, we do not see any type of manifestation in our reality, the type of paradigms that the naturalists are promoting through the evolutionary theory. If you have something to present, sir, come into my stream and give me evidence. I'd be interested Hearing it,
1: gotcha. And Gabriel K, thanks for your question. Says, if you have chemists who understand emergence, I will definitely come to your channel. But it's a cute way to promote your channel. Jesus and I both love you.
2: <laughs> Guess that's maybe for me. I yeah, don't
1: know
0: who we... that's from. Right.
1: <laughs> <Gotcha. laughs> Gabriel K, appreciate it. You've, you've, uh, baffled us all we appreciate it and i
2: think she maybe was talking about me because i said something about i have a i have a pharmaceutical chemist named tony and he's in my stream and we kind of proposed to the atheist to come and dare prove that there's any you know watertight evidence for abiogenesis whatsoever so yeah any of you atheists that think you have any type of coherent argument for the origin of life please come to my channel try to pitch it we're waiting
1: Gotcha. And mocracy. Thanks for your questions. And Erica, can creationists accept new information?
0: <laughs> I feel like that's I feel like that's more of a play on words. So I will just say I have known creationists to accept new information. Yes.
1: Gotcha. That is a clever pun if it was. All right. Thanks for your Jim Benton. Thanks for your question. Said. How do I participate in a debate? If you email me at moderndaydebate at gmail.com, we will try to get you set up. And that is open to anybody. Want to let you know, folks, we're open to anyone coming on to debate. So for real, no matter what walk of life, Christian, atheist, even if you're one of those like political, like oh extremists, like gay, straight, you name it. No matter what walk of life, we do want you to feel included and welcome and you're welcome to come on and make your case. And so, Jim, if we hear from you, excellent. We'll try to get you set up. And again, uh, Twitter DM is a, also a great way to reach me. Facebook messaging, I don't check as much. It's really cumbersome. It's so slow to open it Mm. from my page. Stupid Mm. Whore Energy, thanks for your question, said, there's another finch gene called ALX1 that does affect face shape in humans, but it's variants that cause the different beak sizes. The beak sizes aren't all
2: already in the ancestral gene yeah no no the the information for them is it's like i don't she's trying to like i don't know she's trying to oversimplify what i actually said like the genetic information for all of the crossbred species everything that bred out from the ancestral finch the, the finch the genome included the information that was necessary for different beak sizes that could have filled in the gaps of the ecosystem that was essentially what i was saying
1: gotcha Jungle Jargon says, are Christians accepted here? Aren't you a Christian, Jungle Jargon? I thought. But well, we we absolutely everybody is. By the way, one thing I do want to mention. We have so few Muslim guests. So I do want to let you know, we would love to oh. have more Muslim debaters. I'll debate so, a
2: Muslim any day of the week, James. Please if, get me a Muslim to debate.
1: If anybody knows anybody who comes from a Muslim worldview. Please help us. If they love to debate, we'd love to have them on as we we definitely want to have everybody have their chance on an equal playing field here. Gabriel K., thanks for your question. This is for, I think, for for logical, plausible. Probable says, dude, why are you spamming James? Earn your own crowd. This is not logical or probable (laughs) or possible. Don't be a clown. Beggars can't be streamers. (laughs) Appreciate that. But yes, as I mentioned, anybody, if Atheist Channels or any type of channel wants to have an after show let us know we will uh, link it it's true john maddox does a lot of after shows but the door is open to anybody so flum or flume let me know if i mispronounced that 666 thanks for your super chat didn't see a question but if you have one just let me know in the live chat and i'll read that out for you just oh wait spart i forgot yours spart 344 thanks for your question said as for the let me see if i can get this back as for the second law of thermodynamics, is the Earth an open or closed
2: or isolated system? Again, well, again, it doesn't matter, it, and and I don't I don't know unless someone can show me some sort of definitive paper evidence on that of exactly what it is and what they're trying to apply it to. Again, it's still irre- irrelevant to my point. Order breaks down, specificity breaks down, information breaks down. It doesn't increase in order. It doesn't get better with time. Things do not improve with time. Everything breaks down. If you have an example of something that doesn't, even in biology or evolution, please just give it to me. Stop asking me nonsensical abstracts about something that isn't even my point.
1: Gotcha. And thank you for your, He <laughs> you had a long day today. I His did. tomatoes got fried by the sun, people. Take it easy on them. Uh, we'll see. That's true. <laughs> so thanks for oh, your question. <laughs> this one is from, <clears throat> where did I, I just, hold on, I missed one. Brian Stevens, good to see you, buddy. says, question for Smokey. Does he have a competing scientific theory to evolution, or is he just a
2: beta? I, well, I and again, Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, again, I'm not I'm not really trying to defeat evolution. And then certainly everyone kind of defines it differently. What I'm trying to defeat is the idea of naturalism being the driving factor that you can interpret all of this through naturalistic lenses and still be coherent with not having to prove your case that naturalism is true. It's not. It's not honest. It's not genuine. You, you're, all you're doing is trying to avoid the natural burden of proof you yourself have. It's not. It's not something you get to just run from and deny. It's philosophically relevant and it's there. So, so if you guys don't want to address it, that's that's up to you. But you're just being religious zealots. You're not being rational skeptics. You're being irrational cynics. So get get yourself a little self-actualized with some of these questions.
1: Gotcha. And thanks. For your super chat from John Maddox, logical, plausible, probable. He jabs back saying, I literally super chat, not BAG in all caps. So thanks for your question. Okay.
0: Yeah. Let him that's a good closing word. If we've got no other, oh wait, we do. We do.
1: (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say. Oh Wait, there's one from Spart. Spart is giving me the last half of his question because I got, the first half. Then, democracy. Thanks for your question. Said, please debate Russia Gate, Ukraine Gate, and impeachment. Those are good ideas. That'd be fun. Oof. Especially, kind of wondering like, what would impeachment? How would that be? Like, just should it happen? I think that's what they mean.
2: Hmm.
1: Spark got your question. Okay, thanks for your patience, Spark. Their question, and then we got to wrap up, folks. I want to let these guys get to sleep at a decent time. I think Smokey's in California. Erica is in. You're on the East Coast, right?
0: Oh, I, I normally I am. I've been back and forth a lot of uh, visiting family, like nonstop. It's been actually kind of terrible, like driving back and forth. So right now I'm actually in central time, but normally I'm Eastern.
1: Nice. Which so state it's are you in? not that
0: bad for me today. Which state? Um, Right now I'm in Tennessee.
1: Pretty dang. And Smokey yeah. is in California, but he, you know, he still usually goes to bed at like eight so (laughs) you gotta wrap this up fast i'm
2: an old man these days
1: so thanks for your question this is from spark 344 says if we took all did i get this nope that can't be right give me two seconds i got this i promise
0: we'll get it we'll get it just give it time (laughs)
1: let's see that reminded me of okay so spark 344 says if we took all of the bones that erica lay out laid out in her opening is it fair to say that the progression seems like it would be climbing an improbable mountain with james being at the peak thank you for that <laughs> a good, good i really
0: thought that was going a different way but i really like where it ended up <laughs> oh that's great
1: if you want to let's see uh if you want to respond Smoogie will give you a sec and then
2: yeah, no, that th- that's funny. That's yeah, all good. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. I'm sure if you placed James's skull post mortem next to all of them, it would appear like we've just. Yeah, mean, a I think James. James totally would almost. Genera.
2: Yeah, James would have to be like the prime specimen. The like, next like, step. Yeah, next like step. like when Hitler was writing Mein Kampf, he had James in his mind. He's like, uh, this is no, perfect.
1: that doesn't sound
2: good.
1: Weird? Okay. Did I make it weird? Did I make
2: it weird? Yes.
1: We <laughs> totally this <laughs> thing nasty. Gabriel K. Thanks for your question. Said, "Cry, Maddox, Smokey, you start on infinite turtles."
2: What? Uh, what does that mean?
1: Uh, is that like a turtles all the way
0: down thing? I don't. I I know I, the I, phrase, but I don't know if that's.
2: Yeah, I don't know what that. Do you know what it means? I don't know what that means. That's, that was my do- guess. Is it was a reference to that, but I
1: don't know. I don't. Did you ever bring that up? Is that what you believe? Uh, <laughs> what? What? That the world's sitting on a turtle? Yeah, big turtle. <laughs> Many turtles. Okay, I think that. Oh, yeah. So, I think we're all caught up on questions. So, thanks, folks. Really do appreciate it. Want to let you know we are stoked, folks, as this Friday we will have an epic Flat Earth debate. Tom Jump returns for the first time ever, taking on Austin Witsit-Gitsit, it, is, you could say, kind of like Nathan Thompson's, would it be fair to say kind of, I don't know if I'd say apprentice, but it, he's got a lot of Nathan oh, Thompson nice. debate style in, uh, in his arsenal. So, yeah, Erica's...
0: Soon in. Tune in, everyone. Her old
1: buddy, Nathan. Yeah, so, but uh, we are very excited for that one. So, yes, folks, we really appreciate you. Just want to let you know, thanks so much for all the encouragement. It means a lot. You really do. You have no idea. It really does mean a lot. So feel free to hit that like button on the way out if you want to support this stream. We really appreciate it. And most of all, thanks so much to Erica and Smokey just for being here, hanging out with us.
0: It's a privilege.
2: Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. So, with that, folks, keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. Take care.